Uh, we're in Numbers. I think we've been working through Numbers this whole fall, and it's an exciting book. It's, it's uh, not always perceived that way. Uh, its title doesn't help it because um, everyone thinks it's a list of numbers, which it's just bookended with a lot of counts. So you're going to see counts at the beginning, counts at the end, and when you recognize what takes place in the middle, uh, then you realize why the counts are there because we're actually counting two separate generations that are taking place. And what's interesting about this chapter, and I, I apparently, again, I must hit the button too heavily so it kind of just keeps advancing, but uh, chapter 18 and chapter 19 are going to carry us actually through the wandering years. This is such a short segment of time that we work. So last week we talked about Korah's rebellion, and then we see the 250 people and Dotham and Abiram and On actually, or Or, uh, that get punished because they want leadership, they want the priesthood, and the people rebel. 14,700 people die in one fell swoop. And I just want you to keep in mind as you're looking at the count of 600-some thousand people, men, uh, that they're all dying, and they're all dying condensed in this area. And one of the huge parts of chapter 19 is really God's grace and mercy as he gives the nation of Israel an alternative for cleansing when they're made unclean by contact with the dead. And I'll talk about it as we get to 19. But as you're working through 38 years of wandering, and this is going to carry us to that, 20 is going to see us moving. We're going to be leaving and moving to Moab, starting that journey. We're going to watch Miriam die and Aaron die and Moses make a mistake and end up not being able to enter the promised land. We're going to watch a movement. And then 22 on, we're going to be watching them fight tribes on the one side of the Jordan, and we're going to see them building to the entry into the promised land. And so here we're ending quote-unquote, the wandering, the, the, the listlessness, and there's a lot of death that has to be in our brain. But what happens is, I put here, is God's clear plan, uh, because God is going to take care of some of the battle we've been doing. Chapter 17 started that with saying, the whole budding staff, Aaron is the, is the, the priest that I have chosen, it's my choice. And then 18 is going to kind of walk us through some of the more details, 18's unique. I think I shared this when we were doing Leviticus. Usually God is talking to Moses. Very few occasions does God talk directly to Aaron. Chapter 18, all the way to verse, I think, 25, God is talking to Aaron and giving him instructions. And so all this conflict about a priest, who can be priest, a lot of battling. There's a lot of jockeying for position, for power. And so what God does in 18 and 19 is he, he makes it very clear that he has chosen who's going to be priest, that he, he is, and I put the word, the weight of worship, because he's letting them know worship is done my way. It's done how I've directed with the people that I've said need to be leading worship. And so in his abundant grace and mercy, he lays out again what he has commanded. If you're ever walking into a, a chapter in Numbers, you're like, wow, God is like, huh, so adamant. He's so zeroed in. He's just so determined. It, there seems to be no give in God, and, and the reality is there's no give on the, on the side of holiness and purity, but what we miss if we don't look at the whole context is how often God gives the same instructions to Israel over and over again, and what we're seeing here is an unfolding of his mercy again as he shares with them the weight of worship. Now, remember how 17 ended the children of Israel spake unto Moses, saying, Behold, we die, we perish, we all 
perish. Whosoever cometh anything near unto the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Shall we be consumed with dying? That's the end of 17. God has made it abundantly clear that you do not usurp his authority and that their attempt for, for position and to tweak worship and to tweak everything, to, to grab hold and say, I want this for myself. God has made it very clear that they have confronted a holy God with unholiness. And now they're petrified. And so when I say the weight of worship, that's weighing heavy on the nation of Israel right now. And now God is going to speak to Israel, speak through Aaron to Israel on this idea of a weight of worship. And he's going to be giving Aaron instructions and laying out what he's to do in association with the tabernacle and then what he's to do in association with the tithe, offering, and gifts that come in. So I'm going to be in chapter 18, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Um, you can follow along uh, with that. And it says, The Lord said unto Aaron, Thou and thy sons and thy father's house with thee shall bear the iniquity of the sanctuary, and thou and thy sons with thee shall bear the iniquity of your priesthood. And so they said to God, We're going to perish, we're going to die. And God says to Aaron, I'm holding you accountable. The weight's now on your shoulders. This is what you, you need to guard what's been entrusted to you, is what he's saying. And thy brethren also of the tribe of Levi, the tribe of my father, bring thou with thee that they may be joined unto thee and minister unto thee, but thou and thy sons with thee shall minister before the tabernacle of witness. So the Levites still have their role, but they are not to try to, like Korah did, try to usurp that, to, to say, I want this position. He's making sure he understands, I've laid this out for a reason. This is how it's going to go. They are going to keep thy charge and the charge of all the tabernacle. Only they shall not come nigh the vessels of the sanctuary and the altar that neither they nor ye also die. In other words, they are not allowed to bend the rules. The ones that came with the incense and died, that's a warning that you do not come to God in an unholy manner. You don't approach God your way. That's something for the church today to understand. We are very independent in our worship. We go to God, and in our mind, we think God is lucky to have our worship. And when you read Numbers, you realize that we're fortunate to be able to worship the true God. It's a switch in the mindset, because we have an arrogance in us that is actually mirrored in Israel, and that's what Aaron is going to end up doing, is keep the people from arrogance in worship, trespass in worship. So it goes on, and they shall be joined unto thee and keep the charge of the tabernacle of the congregation for all the service of the tabernacle, and a stranger shall not come nigh unto you. And you shall keep the charge of the sanctuary and the charge of the altar that there be no wrath any more upon the children of Israel. Do your job, Aaron, and do it with diligence, and don't let anyone bend the rules at all. And in all reality, you're protecting the nation of Israel, from themselves. You are forming a barrier. Here is Aaron in some ways functioning like the ultimate high priest as he stands between. And then he goes on, I behold, I have taken your brethren, the Levites, from among the children of Israel to you. They are given as a gift for the Lord to do the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. Therefore, thou and thy sons with thee shall keep your priest office for everything of the altar and within the veil, and ye shall serve. I have given your priest's office unto you as a service of gift, and the stranger that cometh nigh shall be what? Put to death, killed. Anyone that bends these rules, death is their punishment. 
And I want to point back to the weight of worship. And, and if you get nothing else out of chapter 18, get that. God is serious about worship. God is not okay with anything goes, anyone goes, anything works. That is not how we approach the holy God. And so he's laying it out there. I wrote my notes, worship is not some casual thing where God is lucky if we show and we can do whatever strikes our fancy. As can be seen in the previous chapters, and I put the death of casual, pretentious worshipers and the final realization by Israel that they're going to perish and are undone, God is serious about worship. And that weight of worship is emphasized again as God makes clear that he has provided his leader, and in the context that we're going to look at, his way to keep the people from the arrogance, and he uses the word trespass, in worship. Aaron is to stand in the gap. He's supposed to do what God's called him to do with diligence. The nation or the tribe of Levi is supposed to guard the tabernacle. If you go all the way back at the beginning of Numbers, they were told that if any Israelite approached the tabernacle area that they were guarding, they were to kill that person because if that person breached what was there, they would then have put the wrath of God upon the whole nation. We're getting a repeat of these instructions because they've forgotten it in that short period of time. And we're talking and laying out instructions for a whole new generation that's coming on to the scene. Because remember, we're ending our wandering. We don't know where this lands in the wandering, but we do know that we're ending our wandering. And so keep the people from arrogance or trespass in worship. Don't bring an arrogant worship. Give a question. When they're talking about a stranger in this context, when we see stranger or sojourner, we oftentimes don't think an Israelite. But in this chapter 18, it's anyone that's not a Levite cannot approach the tabernacle. They do not walk and take the role that doesn't belong to them. So the nation of Judah does not walk in and go to the Levite and say, well, you know, I just want to, can't I just wander in here? No, they have their job and God's calling both Aaron and the Levites to do their job without deviation, without bending, without leniency. We love leniency, don't we? We love to bend the rules. We are looking for a way around, a, a, a ticket out. All you have to do is go walk with the kids, and, and they're always finding a reason why they should get candy. Even if you say, no, this is the rules. Yeah, there is always a movement to try to get in there. That's who we are. I put here, notice that Aaron and descendants would bear the iniquity, one. Notice that the Levites were called to guard the tabernacle to prevent anyone, stranger, and that word stranger there is talking about anyone that's not a Levite that would come in. Uh, but they must recognize their limits as Aaron and sons guarded the priesthood and the sacrifices he was called to do. And so what you're seeing is a layered approach that God is laying out. Now, this can be twisted the wrong way, and someone could say, well, now we'll go to a church today, and don't let anyone that's here do this, and this person can do that, and that would be a wrong application. What we see, and I want to understand it, is God's merciful explanation and direction to Israel, and then the thing that we've got to notice is do we see our own arrogance and trespass today? Do we understand the weight of worshiping a holy God, and do we then approach God correctly? Because that is what he's talking about. The nation of Israel was not giving 
a carte blanche idea where they can just do what they want. They're God's people, so do whatever you want. God is fine as long as you adhere or are faithful to him. We talked about in Judges. Judges is when everyone does what's right in their own eyes. The first story in Judges is Moses' grandson breaking every rule that God lists here, and God lists in Judges that this is idolatry. It's not even worship. But if we're going to apply or extend the idea or the weight of worship today, and we deal with this idea of arrogance that permeates who we are, that comes out, then we have to confront our own heart and mind and say, do I walk to God? Do I come to worship God in arrogance? And that can permeate any of us. And the idea that I think we face is we think God's lucky if we show up to church. Oh, I'm here. I made it, God. I did it, you know. I, I make sure I take care of it. Well, is that really worship? Well, we know from judges that it's not. We know from numbers that it's not. God is not casual about his worship. Now, this is not setting forth a methodology today because the people then misapply this and, and we, we wander into legalism. But it is coming to God's word and to God and saying, how does God desire to be worshipped? What is, what is the mandates of Scripture? What has he called us to do as his people? It is not wandering and saying, well, I get more out of this experience than the other experience. I had a friend of mine who's going to church with somebody and they just disappeared for six months. And so he bumps into him. He's like, hey, what's, what's going on? Well, we decided that for a period of time, we were just going to worship outside, pray and just kind of yoga meditate out there and then we'll see how God will speak to us through nature is that what God said to do no no to make it even more serious and I've shared this before you go through a life experience and you say ah just I just can't go to God's house and worship is that in the New Testament is that in God's word anywhere does he give permission not to worship what does that show about that person? Arrogance. That's what it ultimately shows. Well, I'll decide when I worship God. And I've had a tough run of it. It's been difficult. I've walked through, and, and look, I've walked through. Whenever you get there, you realize that you're isolating yourself and making your life the toughest it's ever been. And the reality is we've all, I think, walked through tough times, and there's people that walk through tougher times than we've had to. And, and you, maybe you are walking through the toughest time there, but there's no escape clause in there. And so right away, when I see someone backing out of worship, when they step back from worship, I say, well, <laughs> how they'll come for counseling. Oh, I need counseling. I need help. I need to walk through this. I want to know what God wants me to do. Worship. Start with that. Start with the simplest command that's there. But I've seen leadership do the same thing. Oh, I'm walking through it. It's a tough journey, and I just can't bear to be there. The pain's too much. Oh, okay. I didn't know God said the pain's too much, you don't worship him. I didn't realize that was an excuse. It's because it's not. It's not in Scripture. Because when you start Xing off worship, you've lost sight of the weight of worship. And it permeates our culture as we deviate, as we move, as we make excuses. We must worship. We're called to do what God's called us to do. I, I've talked with people before even about worship here at City Light, and they, they'll dialogue through how we worship, and I say, well, it's on purpose to follow what God's law is. We're here to worship. We're not here for an experience for ourselves. It's not even at, and I'm going to be honest, it's not at the dictates of myself or anyone else in leadership. 
We must come and we must worship. And we're responsible to, to be a part of that worship and carry forward because there is a weight to worship that God makes crystal clear. Now, in all of this, notice something about Aaron's role. Thank you, Aaron, for being the God that takes care of everything. What does God say about his role? It is a what? Gift. It's an opportunity from God. One to be cherished and used to help the people and to protect the people. As a believer, you have been given a gift of eternal life. It is to be cherished and it's to be used to fulfill God's purpose. You then have everything zeroed in on who you are in Christ. And not only is it worship, but it's every component of what and who we are. And notice the priest's role in protecting the people. What do we have as believers today? A call to be a hedge, to fill the gap, to be a protector of the people. How do people know we're Christians? By our love. So an unloving church is what? Not doing its role because it's not painting a picture of, of what Christ has done. It's not beckoning. It's not the light it's supposed to be. In other words, we have to subject ourselves, our will, our desires, our passions need to be funneled into what God's called us to do. And we're called to cherish the gift he's given us and to then use it for his purpose. And part of that purpose is to protect, to be a hedge, to be a covering. And in that role, he's also called Aaron to keep the people, and then I put and priests and Levites, from arrogance in provision. So it shifts in 18. We go from this idea of worship and who does it to, let's be honest, it goes to money. It goes to the tithe. It goes to the giving. And suddenly God's speaking to Aaron and saying, I need you to keep the people in line in this area and keep yourself in line and make sure the Levites are in line. Aaron is called to handle it correctly and the people are called to give consistently. If you look at verse 8, and we'll read through 14, and then I'll summarize some of the rest. And, and I, behold, I have taken your brethren, the Levites. Sorry, I'm, I'm reading it over again. Verse 8, and the Lord spake unto Aaron. So again, that talking to, to Aaron. Behold, I also have given thee the charge of mine heave offerings. And that's really critical because what God is going to do is he teaches Aaron about provision and entrust Aaron with it. He's going to make sure everyone knows from whom comes provision. And for the priests and the Levites, it becomes very clear that they get their provision from God. And even in the whole process of giving the tithe and the inheritance of the people being the land, and then they'll tithe the first fruits, that their provision comes from God. So through the whole lesson that we're going to see on giving is this, is this disposition that God is the provider of all that we have. He is the source, and that's going to become clear through this. So it says, these... Um, Mine heave offerings of all the hallowed things of the children of Israel. Unto thee have I given them by reason of the anointing, and to thy sons by an ordinance forever. In other words, this is supposed to be 
perpetuated through the generations. This shall be thine of the most holy things reserved from the fire. Every oblation of theirs, every meat offering of theirs, and every sin offering of theirs, and every trespass offering of theirs, which they shall render unto me, shall be most holy for thee and for thy sons. In the most holy place shalt thou eat it. Every male shall eat it. It shall be holy unto thee. And this is thine, the heave offering of their gift, with all the wave offerings of the children of Israel. I have given them unto thee, and to thy sons, and to thy daughters, with thee by a statute forever, every one that is clean in thy house shall eat of it. So in other words, we have holy meat that's eaten in the tabernacle. Then we have offerings given that would feed his family and the extended family of the priest. And whatsoever is first ripe in the land, which they shall bring unto the Lord, shall be thine. Every one that has clean in thine house shall eat of it. Everything devoted in Israel shall be thine. In other words, it's going to flow through you on these offerings. Then as you expand out verses 15 through 24, and I'm not going to read all of them, God starts sharing about how he will get um, details, the firstborn of animals to be given to the Lord or redeemed, and Aaron and company are to receive that provision. The firstborn child was redeemed for five shekels, and one commentator said that equals six months of pay. So your firstborn would then be redeemed from them for six months worth of pay. Aaron is in charge of this provision. And by the way, if Israel would give correctly, then Aaron and his descendants and all of the Levites would actually have a very large income. They would not be paupers in the land. They wouldn't be begging. They would need nothing. They'd actually be the more wealthy individuals in the land. So when God gives Levi, the Levites those certain towns, and the provision is to come from the people and they're to teach the law. The tithe is, is given throughout the year would be for the Levites. And we're going to see that come up in 25. And actually God's going to speak to Moses there for them. They would have sufficient funds, but not just to get by. They'd actually have, one commentator said, if Israel gave like they were supposed to, the Levites and the priests would have a huge income. In other words, they would never need to wander off. How quickly do they wander off? Well, Judges, you got Moses' grandson seeking another town to have a better income and a better state. Now, I'm not saying that you can blame Israel because his actions are his own, but you realize that he already has spurned what God would give and or Israel has not given it and not been, a, been true to what God has called them to do. They get all of this stuff, and as the chapters unfold— we get a lot more details about what the Levites are going to get. Yet it's clear that this provision comes through the Lord, and ultimately Aaron is instructed to see that his portion is the Lord. So in other words, if they give enough, they would have a huge income, but God wants to make sure Aaron never gets distracted with how much would come in, but instead always centers his mind on that God is his inheritance. So the rest of the people inherit land. Aaron and the Levites inheritance is God's work and the care of what was given to God, which again is substantial if it's done right. You can't miss the reminder of verse 20. And the Lord spake unto Aaron, thou shalt have no inheritance in their land, neither shalt thou have any part among them. I am thy part and thine inheritance among the children of Israel. I'm bringing all this provision, all this income, and it's massive. But I, that, that's not your inheritance. I am your inheritance. And I put, is that not a beautiful reminder for us? 
as we sit today in the church, how many people feel blessed only when it's temporal? I've had a good year. God's blessed me. He gave me a raise. He gave me a business. He gave me a car. He gave me a house. He provided for this. He provided for that. He took care of this. He healed this. Everything we do when we think of inheritance or blessing typically centers on the temporal. And God says to Aaron, I am your inheritance. I am the blessing. We're quickly caught up in the function of this world and that think that this world brings our inheritance, but nothing comes close to the Lord. And so after telling Aaron, you're getting all of these temporal things attached to the work you do for me, he reminds them that he is his inheritance, that the function and priority rest on the Lord. I put as a question, is that how we're seeing it today? And this is kind of one of those self-reflective moments. I remember when I was writing it down today, you, you pause and you think, huh, if I'm honest with myself, is that how I see it? Do I look at my life, do I see the Lord, and do I say, that's my inheritance? He's everything. That's the blessing. I'm his child. I get to serve him. I get to be a part of this. Or do we see it a different way? I know many people, I mean, growing up, you go to a Christian school, you go to church, and, and so your friends are in the Christian world, and suddenly the Christian world is like a jail cell. Because that's how they see it. Well, you know, we're all Christians, so we've got to do X, we've got to do Y, we've got to pursue this, we've got to pursue that. But that's the wrong way to see it, right? That shows an arrogance and a trespass. And then I put, how do we treat it? How do we engage with it? If you're looking for an action step, again, the weight of worship, how you approach a holy God matters, and he makes it very clear that it matters. But also, how do we value what he has said as our inheritance? Now, God switches here, and he starts speaking uh, to Moses. Now, he's been talking to Aaron, but he's going to make a change uh, as he moves into verse 25 of 18. And, and he's going to start talking about the tithe, and he's going to get specific. I'm going to read these verses because what I love him is, is that it teaches the Levites as they receive a tithe to make sure they're tithing. And they're tithing of the best. So they get a tithe of the best, and then from the best, they're supposed to tithe the best of the best back to the Lord, that there is a need for them to give as well. Uh, oftentimes you bump into to ministry, and I've seen this before, and it's a very dangerous place to be. You see someone who's serving in the ministry, but they don't give. And if you confront them, because when you're made aware of it, there is an obligation to confront them, their answer is always, well, I'm giving all my time and talent. Yeah, but you know, you are remunerated and you should be giving. And there's principle after principle that you need to be giving because your provision comes from the Lord. But what have they, what have they done when they don't give, when they don't tithe, when they don't give, when they don't participate in that? I've earned this. This is my work. This is my talents on display. And it's a very arrogant place to be. Actually, it, in my opinion, disqualifies them for ministry. Because they have looked at what God has done and they started to possess it for themselves and to own it. So this is where the Lord spake unto Moses, speaks unto him, saying, verse 25 of 18, Thus speak unto the Levites and say unto them, When you take of the children of Israel the tithes, which I have given you 
from them for your inheritance. So you're, you're positioned in the promised land, and you're going to get these tithes. Then she, you shall offer a heave offering of it for the Lord, even a tenth part of the tithe. And this, your heave offering, shall be reckoned unto you as though it were the corn of the threshing floor and as the fullness of the winepress. Thus ye, shall, thus ye also shall offer an heave offering of the Lord of all your tithes, which ye receive of the children of Israel, and ye shall give thereof the Lord's heave offering to Aaron the priest. In other words, you're participating in what the priesthood is going to receive, the best of the best of the best as it goes out. Out of all your gifts, you shall offer every heave offering of the Lord of all the best thereof, even the hallowed part thereof, out of it. In other words, nothing is off limits to your giving. Therefore thou shalt say unto them, when you have heaved the best thereof from it, then it shall be counted unto the Levites as the increase of the threshing floor and the increase of the winepress. And ye shall eat it in every place, you and your household, for it is your reward for your service in the tabernacle of the congregation. And so what you're seeing is God saying, this is a holy tithe given to me. Then now Levites, as you're spread through the nation, you get. And then you are going to give that to the priest. You're going to come sacrifice. You're going to engage in the offering from that, a tenth. And when that's done, then he, God, in essence, has relinquished that food to now be used in, I would call, the normal household settings, to baking bread on the normal occasion, meat, whatever it would may be. And you shall bear no sin by reason of it when you have heaved from it the best of it. In other words, this is holy. And if you recognize on Aaron, there's certain gifts that are given that must be eaten in the tabernacle because once it's given to God, it's holy. It's set apart for him. And what God is now doing is saying, when you give the best of what you've received, again, from God, then the rest is released to be eaten in a common area, in your home or wherever else you would do it. So your income is based on this, but God is requiring of them generosity, giving. It's a critical part of worship. And then all through this, what do you see? This is mine, you give back, then you get. Everything is locked into the provision comes from the Lord. The whole process of giving and receiving pointed to the true source of blessing for all the people. God gives the people the land. God gives Levites the, the, the towns. He is their inheritance. They give a tithe from what they have. They give of the first fruits, meaning they've had good crops. Then they move in. They're to give. That relinquishes provision for them. The weight of worship then closes with a warning to Aaron and to the priest and to the Levites and becomes a reminder to all Israel that God takes his worship seriously. I'm going to read the end of 32. Neither shall ye pollute the holy things of the children of Israel, lest you die. And what God does at the end of the weight of worship, as he's walked through not being arrogant in worship, and then I'm going to use the same word arrogance, not being arrogant about what you have. God's making sure that Aaron and the Levites and the people understand that their provision comes from the Lord and they need to treat it like that, that they need to respond in giving accordingly. And it's all tucked into a chapter about worship. And I want us to understand something. Giving is worship. When we give back to the Lord as we're supposed to, it acknowledges to Him that it is all His. And He wants that as the weight of worship. Worship is a weighty matter and one should not take it casually. But as we move from the weight of worship, which we're setting up, remember all of this leans towards the promised land. Again, every, every rule here is, 
It, it ties into this idea that will be in the promised land when you're in your place, when you're amongst the tribes, speaking to the Levites. Right now, everyone's together. They're all around. There are no first fruits. There's no crops being grown. There's nothing happening in that sense. They're not growing grapes in the desert. But as we walk into the promised land, this is what needs to happen. Then we move to chapter 19, and we find out that God is going to remind them about purity, about cleanliness and holiness. And that's what chapter 19 shows us, the weight of cleanliness. Now in Leviticus, Israel is given a prescription for cleanliness that involves washing and sacrifice. And the, and the sacrifice was not cheap. It was costly. This chapter is going to center in on dead people. Contact with dead people. And contact with the dead resulted in you being unclean. And in Leviticus, as we're getting ready to enter the promised land and go in, God says, hey, if you have contact with the dead, you're going to then have to have seven days where you're unclean outside of the camp. And then you're going to have to wash with water twice, day one, I think it's one, three, and seven, or so it's three times. And then you're going to have to offer a sacrifice to be clean. You're going to have to give an animal that's killed and taken care of. And that's anyone brought in contact with death. Uh, if you're in the same tent, if you're on the battlefield, if you dig a grave, if you touch a bone, and you, you touch the dead in any way, shape, or form, you have to do this because a holy God cannot be connected with death. Because what is death? The wages of sin is death. Death ties back to sin. That's why you don't have death before sin. Death is a consequence of sin, which also helps us when we go all the way to the beginning and understanding the time frame of the beginning is very serious. I have a, a low tolerance for people that deviate from there, uh, and that's because it's not biblical, because it's, it's very clear. You can't have death before sin. It doesn't make any sense, because the wages of sin is death. If death happened before sin, then the wages of sin isn't death, because death is already there. So that's where you tie back, and you, you can see some principles, but death equals sin, and so therefore a holy God cannot be contaminated with sin. So death is the final straw, so to speak, the final painting, the final color on the painting of what sin has cost, then you have to realize that this outcome was time-consuming and costly, but it fit into the flow of a normal society. As they're going to the promised land, God has miraculously fed them. He's giving them water. My guess is he's keeping them pretty healthy. Then you switch over and you don't enter the promised land. Now you're wandering in the desert with 40 years, which is a lifespan. That's why the 40 years comes in. In, in Scripture, 40 kind of gives that kind of picture there. And that 40-year span from when they left Egypt to now, 1.25 million people are going to die that all march together. So if you do the math, that's, and when you get the count of the soldiers at the end, it's like 50% of the people are dying. How can you avoid contact with the dead? It's literally impossible. If you hit someone on the battlefield, if they die in your tent, if you walk into a place where a dead person was, if you touch the furniture that a dead person sat on or touched, or, or, or let's make it even more difficult, I touch a dead person, I touch this table, you touch this table, you're now unclean. So uncleanliness is just massive. So what we're going to get in 19 is the red heifer. We're going to get the, the ash for purification. 
It is a very unique thing. There's no precedent for it in the Old Testament at all. Actually, the blood of this heifer is burnt with it, so blood purifies from sin. And so you're going to see the blood burned there. And really what it is is we're seeing a ton of people die in one jammed-in experience, and you see God again extending grace as he gives an alternative to being cleansed from contact with the dead. It's a process of cleansing that would have maintained the weight of cleansiness, but it would have allowed a more sustainable situation for the people. And so what you see is God's holiness still elevated, and you see the mercy and grace and kindness of God as he gives them an alternative to what's there. Chapter 19, it says, The Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, We're seeing a switch here about purity. This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord hath commanded, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring thee a red heifer without spot, wherein is no blemish, and upon which never came yoke. And the word heifer is translated because it's not a heifer. It's actually a very young cow. They use heifer because it's an animal that would be considered virginal. It's never been plowed with. It's never been worked. It's, It's never had anything done with it. So it's animal by this point in its life, would usually have been worked. A heifer would not have been worked. So the translators chose heifer, but it's really a cow. It's a very young cow, but it cannot have had anything done to it. It can't be worked, nothing that's there. And it says, Ye shall give her unto Eliezer the priest, that he may bring her forth without the camp. So you're starting to see something different here. Sacrifices take place where? At the tabernacle. A burnt offering takes place at the tabernacle, on the altar. This animal is not sacrificed. It's not put on the altar. What it's being done to it is creating holy ash that's going to be put for cleansing. It's God's alternative that he's building out. So he's going to take her outside and slay her before his face. What does that mean? He's got to kill her. It can't be like, hey, we killed the heifer, Eliezer. Why don't you pop on out and let's light this fire? And he says, hey, you guys get it going. I'll be out there in a little bit. He is, as the priest, very intimately involved in this process. Red heifer, red cow, outside a camp, must be slain by him in front of him. Right there he is. And then it said in one And Eliezer priest shall take her blood with his finger and sprinkle of her blood directly before the tabernacle of the congregation seven times. From outside the camp, he's sprinkling towards the tabernacle. This is is a link to a burnt offering. They would sprinkle the altar seven times. So there is a connection, but the word when it comes to burn is a different word for burn than burning an offering. And so then it says, one shall burn the heifer in his sight, her skin and her flesh and her blood, With her dung shall he burn. It is completely burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet, really scarlet thread, and cast it in the midst of the burning of the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes, and he shall bathe his flesh in water, and afterwards he shall come into the camp, and the priest shall be unclean until the even. This is interesting. He is burning the cow that is going to be used for purification. But in the process of doing this, he becomes unclean. Then it says, And he that burneth her 
shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his flesh. And then it goes, sorry, on Terah and Theban. And he that burneth her shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his flesh in water and shall be unclean until the even. And a man, now see the layer here, that is clean shall gather up the ashes of the ephor. So Eliezer burns it, he's unclean. Now someone else that's clean, not been defiled, must come and load up the ash because it's stored to be used in purification. He gathers it up and lays and then lay them up without the camp in a clean place. So the ash is not stored in the camp, it's stored out of the camp, but in a clean location. And it shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for a water of separation. It is a purification for sin, specifically contact with the dead. And he that gathereth the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until even. And it shall be unto the children of Israel and unto the stranger that sojourneth among them for a statute forever." In other words, what God is doing is giving them an alternative to cleansing as they come in contact with the dead, specifically for this generation, this time, but something that will extend into the future for next generations. Red heifer, why, signifies blood. It would be burned, taken outside the camp. It's not a sacrifice on the altar. Uh, some procedures follow. It's burned completely with cedar wood, which is a symbol of incorruptible continuance. It's a wood that, that typified something. And then hyssop is added in. That's purging. And then the scarlet thread. And, and you think, well, why in the world does that help? Or scarlet wool. Uh, some translations will say wool. Some will say thread. Uh, the Hebrew is, is not so defined that they know exactly what the word means. So some people look at it. It would intensify the color of the ash to be more red. Uh, it symbolizes, though, blood. And that means life. So it's speaking of the life, the blood. Uh, the life is in the, in Leviticus, in the blood. And so you're adding this idea of blood to it. The blood is burnt with it. That's the unprecedented part in the Old Testament. Yet it's critical in producing ash that has a purificating, a purificatory properties. The blood purifies. We're washed clean by the blood. And so there is... When I say symbolic nature, we see the picture painted to us. And then Eliezer, of course, is unclean. The person who gathers the ashes is, are unclean. All pointing to the weight of cleanliness, God's holiness, and the defilement of sin and death. So this was never to be a casual, quick, delegated task. This involved the priestly family. This involved a, a whole layer it's not one guy taking care of everything because now someone has to go out there. We have to kill the animal. We have to burn the animal. We have to add cedar. We have to add hyssop. We have to add scarlet thread. Then the priest has to go wash himself, wash his clothes. Got to go into, he's unclean. He's done. Then another clean person has to come out. No blemish, no problem. Go get the ashes. They get the ashes. They secure the ashes. And then they're unclean and they go through a cleaning process. All of that is going to build in the mind. And it's not some magic potion. It's never viewed that way. People get very... Uh, weird and, and into that stuff. That's never what God was intending. It's a weight of what's taking place would rest on them, but it gives them an alternative. And then they're reminded over and over that they need cleansing and that they now can use this cleansing to deal with de death. And why does death have to be dealt with? Well, to remind you, it points out sin and brokenness. Death the wages of sin is death. Paul repeats that for us, going all the way back. They understood this now. They're linked to this brokenness, and it points out unholiness and uncleanliness in general. Why in the world do you need cleansing? Because you come in contact with the dead. The dead point to the fact that we're sinful. Then it goes on in 11 
through 22, and I'm out of time, so I'll summarize it here a little bit. What you get in 11 through 22 are a list of circumstances where you need to be cleaned. And basically, it's emphasizing that when you come in contact with the dead, you need cleansing. You cannot avoid it. And there's some principles that are going to jump out from this. There's warnings about uncleanliness. I'm going to read it. That verse is 20 says, But the man that shall be unclean and shall not purify himself, that soul shall be cut off from among the congregation. Cut off means killed, by the way. Not shunned. It's put to death. And if no one knows and they do something that has to be done, then God will cut them off, which is death, not shunning. So it's not like, hey, you can't come into camp no more. We don't want to talk to you. And, oh, no, I hope our kids don't sneak out and talk to the unclean guy, the guy that do it. He's not going to be around. He's done for. This is a death penalty. It goes on. You're going to be cut off from among the congregation because he had defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of separation had not been sprinkled upon him. He is unclean. And it shall be a perpetual statute unto them that he that sprinkleth the water of separation shall wash his clothes, and he that touches the water of separation shall be unclean until even. Do you realize that if you touch a dead body, you need to go through seven days of separation. You need to be clean with this purification water twice, and that everyone that administers the water must be clean, but the second they administer the water, they are unclean for a day. Are you going to get the weight of what it means to be unholy? When you have this approach, and then remember, this is completely merciful by God. The rule was seven days, I think it's washing twice, three and seven, um, and then you had to offer a sacrifice. So this is an alternative to uncleanliness due to death, but there's no brushing aside that. The weight of it sits on them. And then there's an interesting lesson to be learned. Persistent or chosen uncleanliness, rejecting purification was dangerous. It was a death penalty because it showed that they despised the Lord. I don't need to get clean. I don't think what God says is important. Dead. You've despised God and his holiness. And then there's another thing. And whatsoever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the soul that touches it shall be unclean until even. Do you realize the perpetual nature of uncleanliness? I'm unclean, I touch the table, you touch the table, you're unclean till even. And there's, there's a principle that's there. Uncleanliness is contagious. And that's a clear principle, right? What's the, what's the little saying? Bad company corrupts good morals. Our world has the ability to recognize some of this. But God in Numbers has said, uncleanliness begets uncleanliness. It, it's the, it, it's, it, just, it is passed on. Notice what doesn't happen the clean person administers the water. What happens to them? They're unclean. They don't pass on any cleanliness. They only become unclean. And there's a principle that we see there, and I hope we see it in the weight of cleanliness, goes back to the weight of worship, and all of this centers around a holy God. The question that comes to my mind is, do we treat God's holiness with the same seriousness today? Because throughout Scripture, His holiness is emphasized and elevated. We are a culture that has taken holiness and dragged it down. We want God to be a superhuman. God is not a superhuman. God is God. We're not. We must approach Him as God. 
It is who God is, and none of his attributes can be separated from his holiness. So a lot of times people take his holiness and say, God is holy, God is love. God is holy love. God is holy mercy. God is holy grace. God is holy wrath. God's holiness permeates everything. It becomes an adjective to everything he is. And I put here, are we handling that with the appropriate reverence and fear? I think if we're honest with ourselves and we look at our generation, and, and I would, I'd be fair to say, because I don't just pick on Americans when I say this, because I want to be honest. I, I travel a lot around the world, and I'm not blown away by the massive spirituality of the poor in other nations. I'm not, actually. They are as vile as we are. They are as casual as we are. They need to be confronted with the holy God like we need to do. But let's be in America now, where we are at the church. We are far too casual about a holy God. We have lost sight of a reality because we want to elevate ourselves. He is God, and we most definitely are not. And so sometimes when the world reacts to what God does, well, look at God, who's a jealous God. God can be jealous because he's wholly jealous. We respond to him as created to creator, not equal. We're not equal. He's God and we are not. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, we go all the way back to our chart. This actually ends the wilderness wanderings. Now we're going to still deal with ridiculous behavior. One is going to be Moses, actually who is going to respond to the people with arrogance and pride and result in him not entering the promised land. They're acting like they always act, which is horrific. Go down and you're going to have this death and serpent and this odd symbol that's going to come up where they're going to have to look at a, 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 a serpent on a stick and the, to be healed from what they do. So we're going to have a transition. So we're traveling now. But we're leaving the wanderings. We're now moving in 20 and 21 with purpose to the plains of Moab where they're going to dive in and they're moving to re-entering the promised land. And what we're going to see in 20 and 21, though Moses won't pass away in those, his death sentence is signed in 20. He's not going into the promised land. So you'll see him in numbers, but he's not walking in to the promised land. So what we'll see is old and key leaders pass from the scene. We're going to see Miriam die. We're going to see Aaron pass away. We're transitioning to the next generation. Uh, next week, I want to mention this before I close in prayer. Next week, we don't have any Wednesday ministries, so uh, happy Thanksgiving for everyone. Uh, we'll be back um, on Wednesday ministries on November 29th, and we're going to be walking in or traveling to uh, Moab, and we're going to be traveling to some, some key battles. Uh, one of the stories we, we often know in 22 is Balaam. He's a fascinating character. He actually makes one key prophecy about Jesus Christ. He's an unredeemed prophet, actually. Uh, we find out that he gets killed, and because he's the one that suggests uh, the immorality that takes place with Midian. So he's, he's still a wicked person that God ends up using, and he spurns the, the contact he has there. But we're going to move, starting after Thanksgiving, uh, towards the promised land and towards those battles. Mm -hmm.